Good morning, Grace. Would you open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 1. What good time of singing and worship we've just had. I'm so grateful for the privilege of getting to do this with all of you. It is a balm to my soul to be able to gather like this and sing these words together that express our common faith as well as our common need. I, I love the songs we were singing this morning. That the song, Christ is my hideaway. What a beautiful song. I hope we sing that a lot. Thanks, worship team, for leading us in that song. Christ is my hideaway. I was thinking of all the other potential hideaways I and maybe some of you might have rather than Christ. I was thinking the same thing. We sang a song. I, I don't, I'm not sure. can't remember which exactly what the song was last week, but, but the main line was, Christ is my only hope. Doesn't mean we don't have other hopes, but ultimately, our hope is in Christ. And ultimately, our hideaway is Christ, the place we find security, the place we find our perspective and our joy and our confidence has got to come from him. It can't come from a physician's prognosis that seems pretty hopeful. It can't come from the amount of money we've accumulated at this point in our lives. It can't come from confidence our husband or wife is going to change in the ways we desperately want him or her to. Or it can't rest in the confidence that God will change our children's hearts or give us a future like we want it to be. We have to rest in Jesus. He's the only one. He is the one who overcomes. I was thinking... How often we can live our lives um, in fear. Uh, because it's easy to work out the worst case scenario. We have in the news every day terrible tragedies within seconds of them happening put before us. And if we lived in fear, the worst case scenario, not one of us would be here this morning. Because there are all kinds of dangers just making your way maybe a five-minute drive to church here. Worst case scenario of getting the church this morning would keep you from being here if you lived in the worst case scenario. We, we've got to live confident that even if the worst case scenario happens, God is there and God is the God who saves and redeems and is always at work as Kenny prayed, working out good and his glory in the lives of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Who is your hideaway? What is your hideaway this morning? I was also thinking that great song we were just singing about show us Christ. That's what we want to pray and achieve every single week we gather here. No matter what the primary focus of the sermon may seem, it's always Jesus. We want to see Christ. He is the one who brings hope in the midst of every circumstance, Jesus and his work for us. And as we continue this series this morning on what is man, this question David asks in Psalm 8, what is man, we want to continue to find Christ, the, the son of man who came for us. That's his favorite self-designation, the son of man. That's what he refers to himself as, because he's human, but he's also this glorious figure we find in the Bible, the Son of Man who comes in Daniel 7, who saves us from life in this fallen world. Jesus 
is the one who's the ultimate answer to the question, what is man? He shows us who we are intended to be and who we are able to be in him. And so we continue our series this morning, four sermons on answering the question, what is man? Doug wonderfully began our series by answering that question, man is created. We're dependent on God. We have a God who made us, who's perfect and all wise and all good, and he made us. And then I preached last week on he made us in his image, in his likeness, to represent him, to be more like him than anything else in all of creation. And this morning we consider the fact that he made us body and soul. I am so eager for us to hear from God's word this morning on this subject. It's got massive ramifications for everyday life and just about every issue in contemporary culture these days that we are made body and soul. And then next week we'll talk about being male and female created in God's image, which also has massive implications for our day today. But this morning we're made body and soul. Our anchor passage has been Genesis chapter 1 beginning at verse 26. Here's what it says. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. I want to add to our anchor passage this morning. Chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of, of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living creature. God creates us in his image, and he creates us with bodies from the dust of the earth and with souls breathed into us the breath of life. This is so important that we understand that we are bodies and souls made by God with, yes, some distinction between our bodies and souls, but created to live as men and women, body and soul, with a beautiful unity in our bodies and souls living out our lives as those made in his image. The first thing I want you to realize once again is that God did this. A perfect, all-wise, all-good God did this. And he said, this is very good. And he blesses us then as bodies and souls made in his image, embodied souls to live, imaging him 
and fruit bearing in every area of our lives. And this is such a challenge for us to do. God does this, which means we are dependent on him to be who we, he made us to be. We don't get then to make the calls on what we are intended to be or how we are fulfilling or not fulfilling our destiny. God gets to do that. That's why we need his word. That's why we go to his word to find out who we are. He makes us in his image. God creates us, and so we're dependent on him and accountable to him. And this relationship between body and soul is one that we've had a very hard time throughout the history of the church getting down well, understanding well, living out in a good way. We tend to bifurcate. We separate our bodies and souls. We'll put one emphasis on our, our immaterial part of who we are or our material part of who we are, but this holistic view of humanity as working together as a unified whole, integrated body and soul is really difficult for us. You know, I turn 57 next month. And for most of my life, my body felt like a good friend. And every year that goes by, especially for the past 10 or so, my body's starting to feel more and more like an enemy rather than a friend. Just getting out of bed in the morning sometimes can be a chore of, of kinds because I've seized up a bit during the night in light of maybe overdoing it the day before. And old injuries that my mother, when I was 16, would say, that's going to come back to haunt you when you're in your 50s. And I'd say, ah, I'm thinking, she was right. She was right. And it's amazing. We can almost feel at war with our bodies. And there's a reason for that. The problem's not having bodies. The problem is having fallen bodies. Bodies that are part of a cursed world. That are groaning in this cursed world that are deteriorating over time. I, I published an article with a colleague of mine at Biola years ago, Liz Hall and I, who is a psychologist, and she, she does counseling psychology for a living. And I, I do theology for a living, and we got together and we wrote a paper because Liz realized that she could trace just about every problem that people had in counseling back to being embodied. That, that wasn't the whole story, but often it was a significant part of the story. And she saw just aging and death and eating disorders and obesity and feelings of hatred toward our bodies and sexual struggles and physical suffering and pain and, and uh, feeling just limited in just being able to be in one location at a time. And the internet's caused greater problems than that because we feel like, man, I don't have to just be in one place at a time. And maybe I'm not just in one place at a time via all this technology, but you are. And so learning to love being always located in one place can be hard for us. We're consistently confronted with the problematic reminders of our embodied existence. This is probably what Paul was feeling when he said in 2 Corinthians 5, for while we're in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be, uh, we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now if you read just passages like that, and if you see, for instance, the way the Bible used the word flesh in ways that talk about this fallen existence in a cursed world, you could get a very negative view of being embodied 
in the way we are. And we do need to acknowledge the burdensomeness of life as embodied creatures. We do. We long to be free from all of the difficulties that our limited embodied existence brings our way. And we need to realize that death is not natural. Death is a tragic result of human rebellion against God. And it's a a tragic ripping apart of the body and soul in a way that is not how it should be. And the answer then is not to just go one or the other, but to depend on God's resurrection promise and power that will one day unite body and soul forever. We depend on the resurrection and we don't see this, what's called the intermediate state between death and resurrection where tragically our souls and bodies are separated, but resurrection brings that together again. The joy of knowing Christ has been raised from the dead and that he is the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. That his resurrection becomes the pattern for our resurrected state for those who believe in him is the great hope of the Christian faith. And so we need to start with just a really good solid understanding of what it means to be body and soul. Christians believe what's called dualism. We believe there is an immaterial part of reality and a material part of reality, physical and a spiritual part of reality. Not just in our existence, but in reality. We've got a spiritual realm and a physical realm, and they come together, although there's distinction to them. But when it comes to the human makeup, we believe every human being is both made of physical matter and spiritual reality as well. And throughout the history of the church, there is a terrible track record of the church emphasizing one or the other. And we've got to do everything we can to get this right. There are two ways you get this wrong. And and both of them are a kind of what's called monism. There's just one thing, one way of being, one one, one reality. And the first is called materialistic monism. Don't worry about these, these terms, but just know these are categories that people buy into that say all that exists is matter. There is no spiritual realm. You can explain everything by mere physical explanations. Materialism or naturalism, that there is no spiritual realm. Don't try to explain things by spiritual causes. Everything has material explanation for it. I remember I wrote a book on the jealousy of God, and so I had to study emotions. And sadly, theologians actually don't give us much help on, on emotions, probably either in their actual lives or in, in their, their scholarship. But... Um, but so I had to learn most of what I, I learned about emotions from psychologists and actually philosophers. And it's just amazing how, how philosophers and, and psychologists who, who have to explain everything from a material realm try to explain things like human emotions. And I remember studying uh, the, the emotion of jealousy and I would read things like the reason human beings across human history and all of humanity experience this emotion called jealousy is because it, it can be traced back to our reptilian brain stems when we would, were fighting for a position on a lily pad. When we were frog-like, and, and it, it traces all the way back to that. And I thought, really, that's, that's how I explain jealousy. 
And if you have to find a material explanation for everything, it becomes quite comically absurd after a while. Because we all know there's more to our human existence than just matter, than just stuff. I want to have Doug's bio minute right now. Um, Doug started us off on this series and did a great job kicking it off. And I thought it'd be cool to get uh, some general revelation from the world of biology and science and just give him uh, one to five minutes to help us understand uh, what, what I'm talking about from a scientific, biological, general revelation perspective. And he's agreed to do that. I'm thankful. Hi, Doug. Doug's bio minute or five. Uh, yeah. Is this is that it? I think the reality is um, I'm taking Mr. Banana's place, and I'm not quite sure how I feel about that. Um, so we are born fallen, and as fallen creatures, we are suppressors of the truth, is what Romans 1 tells us. And the first truth that we want to suppress is God himself. So we want to tell ourselves he's not there. And if you want to tell if we want to tell ourselves he's not there, then we need to explain away or also deny the things that are very hard to explain unless he's there. And the soul is one of those. Because if God's not there, how do you explain that we are body and soul? And so we find ourselves naturally in our human condition wanting to deny the existence of the immaterial soul and simply live in the material reality, the stuff we can see and feel and hold and do science on. That's the real stuff and everything else is imaginary. That's the way we tend to go when we're suppressing the truth. And a flip side of that, if we say humans are only body, so this, this physical monism, is that we are machines. A flip side of that is that the machines that we make can be human-like, and this is very familiar in, in this day and age. So artificial intelligence, the, the, the notion that we can make machines that are in every respect like us or maybe even superior to us comes from this rejection of soul because if we are just machines, this, this gray matter in your skull has been called a computer made of meat by artificial intelligence people. So if we are computers made of meat, in machine-like bodies, why would we not be able to make machines that are like us? Two brilliant uh, English mathematicians in computer science have weighed in on this, one of them correctly and one incorrectly. One is Alan Turing, who came up in 1950 with something called the Turing test, where he said, if we can make a computer that can converse with a human such that the human doesn't know they're conversing with a computer and thinks it might be a human, then we will have created a lifelike, a human-like computer. And we, we might as well call it conscious because it's doing everything that we do. Well, the problem with that is it's taking an outside view of what consciousness is, right? And consciousness is intrinsically an internal thing. So it's rejecting the internal thing altogether and saying, if it looks like it's conscious, let's call it conscious. An equally brilliant, maybe more brilliant, computer scientist who's less famous, but she should be very famous, is a woman named um, Ada Lovelace, who in 1850 got this right, what Alan Turing got wrong. She's actually the first computer programmer. A hundred years before there were computers, she was writing computer programs. Pretty good, huh? She said, 
a machine cannot become conscious because to be conscious, to be like us, it would have to originate its own actions. It would have to come up with something and originate it. Whereas all machines are simply turning the wheels and doing what their human inventors told them to do. And therefore she realized in 1850, there's no way that this can happen. Computers are machines and therefore they, they will never originate things. It always originates with the human inventors. And that really is a pretty good common sense proof of the fact that computers will never be like us and we are not machine-like. We do have souls. So we probably shouldn't call it a smartphone. My phone makes me feel dumb all the time, but I'm way smarter than my phone. That's what you're telling me. Thanks, Doug. So we don't buy into a worldview that tries to explain everything by the physical, by matter. Uh, but we also don't buy into a worldview that tries to explain everything by spirit. That may be less familiar to you, but there are entire ways of thinking that different religions and philosophy have bought into called spirit, spiritual monism, that everything's spirit, that even this seems physical, but it, it isn't. It's just an illusion. And actually, this kind of thinking was one of the first problems Christians had trying to explain how God became man in Christ. There were people who had a great aversion to anything that was physical. They thought the physical was the problem, and some people tried to explain it away and said, all that is is spirit. But we believe in body and soul, material and physical, and we know that's a good thing that we celebrate. And so here are two big conclusions I want us to have. We saw in the Genesis 1 passage that God breathes the breath of life into a human being and brings that physical body to life. He had nostrils to breathe that breath into. God makes the body, brings a soul to life with that embodied existence. And so we have at least two constituent parts. There's so much that has been written about, uh, whether there's soul and spirit. Uh, we know there's body and soul, but at the very least, and I recommend Alan Gomes's excellent book, uh, 40 Questions on Heaven and Hell. He's got two chapters in there that deal with this. Uh, Grudem's Systematic Theology deals with this well. There are lots of good books on this that I'll actually put on our website on the sermon page about this. But, but at least two parts of who we are. But, but the emphasis I want us to make sure we come away with today is the holistic, unified understanding of body and soul. There was this way of thinking called Gnosticism early in the church that based on this idea that we had, they had this secret knowledge. But one of, the, one of the basic problems in this way of thinking was that they had a separation between body and soul and a very low view of the body as if the soul, the immaterial part was better. And so it was interesting. It went one of two directions. If you had that way of thinking, some people said, well, then let's, let's have no earthly pleasures. Let's, let's have a view of life that subjects the physical, has no place for it. We transcend. We go beyond the physical. Or it was, well, it doesn't matter what you do with your body then. If we're just really spiritual, your body's irrelevant and you can do whatever you want. And so it either led to, to legalism or license. But that's not how we think. We believe God creates with a loving, personal intention and perfect wisdom. How do you feel about your body? 
I actually know how most of you feel about your bodies. Why do I say that? They've done a lot of research on people, how people feel about their bodies. Do you know if you ask people, what do you think about your body? Do you know the first thing that comes to mind for almost 90% of people when you ask them that question? The thing they hate about their body most. Oh, I hate my feet. Oh, I don't like this about myself. It, we, we have an incredibly negative response to our embodied state. We don't like our bodies. We, we're, we're at war with them in many ways. But we are to love and value being embodied and our souls, realizing that both are always intended to work together. We're not just bodies. Jesus says, man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Feed your soul and not just your body, in other words. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 3.19. Their end is destruction, talking about the wicked. Their God is their belly. And, the glory in, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. See, all they care about is their physical existence. Their bodies, is, their bellies is their God, like Esau gave up his birthright for porridge. And so we can live lives as if we're not spiritual beings, as if our body's all that matter. But we're not just souls either. Everything God creates is good. That's what 1 Timothy 4, 4 says. And nothing it is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. Everything God makes is for us to enjoy, 1 Timothy 6, 17 says. And so we can sometimes emphasize the spiritual at the expense of the physical. And the church has struggled with this throughout our history. We tend to think the physical world and enjoyment and pleasures are bad and we can have a very low view of enjoyments like sex and food and recreation and, and nature and enjoying all that God has made. And we've got to have a balanced view here. C.S. Lewis says there's no good trying to be more spiritual than God. God never meant man to be a purely spiritual creature. He likes matter. He invented it. And so we recognize that body and soul are involved in all of this. And God knitted us together in our mother's wombs. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, Psalm 139 says. Knitted together in our mother's wombs. My wife is a master knitter. Actually, Fiorella talked about Donna's knitting the other day. I brought some samples. Look at this sweater. Can you believe she did this? Just sitting around knitting. Look at that sweater. Is that beautiful? Look at that. Yes. Thank you, Donna. Look at that. I brought another one. Look at this. I can't stop with just one. I was trying to pick one and I couldn't do it. Look at that sweater. Isn't that beautiful? You got reindeers on there. Yes, yes. Reindeers. This one's my favorite. Donna knitted this when we lived in England, uh, in Denmark. Isn't that beautiful? She put all the things, kind of freestyle freestyle sweater knitter. She put, she put a bicycle because we rode bikes all the time. This is actually the street we lived on. These are apartments she made. It says Denmark here. Um, on the back, E plus D. Isn't that cute? And uh, Tigers is the American football team I played for. And boats, we lived near the ocean. Yeah. How about that? How about that? This is a town we lived in. Oh, look at these sweaters. And she, yes, she uses these knit, knitting needles. And th this Hebrew word, it's knitted together. is a really good English translation. She takes these needles. These are bigger than the ones she used down there. I just wanted you to be able to see them. She takes these needles and she carefully with high quality yarn 
She loves how the yarn feels and she loves the process and she plans it out so intentionally and wants it to be beautiful and functional and, and to think that the time and attention and love Donna poured into these sweaters is just a faint reflection of the time and attention and love he poured in to making you God when he made you. This doesn't happen randomly or chaotically or unintentionally. It's amazing creativity and beauty. And that's, that's how we need to think about. Can you imagine after Donna saying this, and, and this could be a problem, you know, if said, Donna, what do you think of this sweater? She said, well, I made a mistake down low, right down here. That'd be terrible if, if she had a dim view of that. But God's perfect. And so when we're told we're knitted together in our mother's wombs, we've got to have a sense of awe about who we are. Unique and made in his image by a perfect God. Isn't it sad we live in Southern California when those get so little use relative to living in Chicago? But yeah, body and soul in all he made us to be. So let's make some implications here. The first thing, think about the implications of being body and soul for how we grow. Let's just think about that. So when God saves us, he saves us body and soul, not just souls. When God cares for us, he cares for us body and soul. And when we're sanctified, when we grow in holiness, we grow body and soul. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole Spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hear how comprehensively he's thinking about growing in holiness? We can have an overly spiritualized spirituality where it's all about soul growth, not realizing the fundamental connection between our bodies and souls. C.S. Lewis has written so many things that are so helpful in this area. Listen, listen to this from the Screwtape Letters. He, he talks about a recent convert to Christianity, and he's giving this junior demon advice on how to corrupt him and keep him from getting close to God. And listen to what he says. The best thing where possible is to keep the patient from the serious intention of praying altogether. Don't let him get a prayer life. That'll be a disaster for our demonic interests in his life. And here's how he says to do it. It's brilliant. When the patient is an adult recently converted to the enemy's party, the enemy's God, like your man, this is best done by encouraging him to remember or think he remembers the parrot-like nature of his prayers in childhood. In reaction against that, he may be persuaded to aim at something entirely spontaneous, inward, informal, and unregularized. And what this will actually mean to a beginner will be an effort to produce in himself a vaguely devotional mood in which real concentration of will and intelligence have no part. One of their poets, Coleridge, recorded that he did not pray with moving lips and bended knees, but merely composed his spirit to love and indulged a sense of supplication. And that is exactly the sort of prayer we want. Because clever and lazy patients can be taken in by it for quite a long time. At the very least, and listen to this, at the very least... These humans can be persuaded that, for instance, their bodily position makes no sense, no difference to their prayers. For they constantly forget what you must always remember, that they're animals, and whatever their bodies do affects their souls. 
He concludes this way. It's funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. Whatever their bodies do affects their souls. I think we've got a significant problem today about an overly spiritualized spirituality that doesn't realize we grow inwardly as we engage outwardly. The fact that you're here this morning acknowledges that. The fact that you stand, and even if you don't feel like it, you sing so your kids can hear your voice. That may not be a good voice at all, but that's not the point. That when we pray, you pray, you, you, you take a physical posture of prayer. Now, he's not saying God doesn't hear you when you're not on your knees. But he is saying, could there be something to getting on your knees and helping your soul toward a humble posture before God? Could there be something in lifting your hands in worship and not just looking like you're watching paint dry? But actually engaging your body in a way that encourages your soul to move in a Godward direction. It really matters what we do with our bodies. Deeply and profoundly in the ways we grow. And in everything else. Can you, can you just begin to think of all the social issues in contemporary culture that what we're talking about this morning has an effect upon? It's just amazing. A book I highly recommend, one of the most important books I've read in the past 10 years, is Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy. Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy. Answering Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality. Tremendously important book. And she just talks about a few of the social issues today that being embodied souls brings to clarity for us as Christians. Just think about what it would mean if we really understood God's wise divine intention in making us bodies and souls. Think about the effect that would have on the way we viewed sex or pornography or hookup culture or homosexuality. Do you realize in, in, in embracing of homosexuality, there is a complete disregard for the obvious divine intention of our bodies sexually? transgenderism, taking it even a step further and completely ignoring the obvious divine intention for bodies as male and female. Think about the implications of, of male and female as gender that we'll talk about next week or what marriages or procreation, bearing children or abortion where a, a human being in the womb is just called a lump of tissue as if it's not a person, and this person-body divide is tragic, has tragic implications. Physician-assisted suicide. The issues of race today, that God made bodies, embodied souls of different races, intentionally, according to his beautiful design. It's incredible what God has done for us in this. And here's what's amazing that takes this to another level. God becomes a human being, an embodied soul as a human being in Jesus. Jesus had a human body. That's what Hebrews 2 says. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Why? That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And he grew and he experienced physical limitations like hunger and thirst and pain and even death. He was tempted in ways only someone who's an embodied soul is able to be tempted. He has a religious life where he prays, where he memorizes scripture, where he applies the scripture to his life and in his ministry. 
He depends on community. He gathers when the people of God gather. He depends on his friends to pray for him. He fasts. He cries out to the Lord in anguish. He engages his physical body in growing and becoming everything we needed him to be. Jesus is everything we need him to be because he really is one of us, right down to being body and soul. Jesus in our place and his ascension is an awesome affirmation that this embodied existence continues. He rises from the dead bodily, he ascends bodily, and the angel tells us that he's going to return in the same way the disciples saw him leave. He still has a body and he always will, representing us as the God-man, the one mediator between God and man, the God-man, Jesus. That's why Hebrews 2, 17 says this, for this reason, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every way. In order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. An awesome picture of who Jesus is for us. We've got to see the ramifications of Jesus' life and ministry, becoming a human being with a, with, a, with a body like we have, living out his spiritual growth as an embodied human so that we can depend on his perfect overcoming of temptation and righteousness and sacrificial death and glorious, victorious resurrection, his ascension and his wonderful consummating return one day. That's who he is for us. We've got to realize this has massive ramifications for our lives. Nancy Piercy in her excellent book, Love Thy Body, she says we've got to speak these truths into our culture, not so we win some culture war, but so that we remove obstacles that are in people's way to finding salvation in Christ. The main obstacles to people considering the gospel these days is Christian ethics that are so at odds with the world. And we can't go into this debate, these discussions. We need to speak prophetically and boldly into life-destroying ways of thinking, but always, not to win an argument about ethics, but to help people see Jesus, to help remove some of the obstacles and the interference people have that's keeping them from seeing the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. Let's not be culture warriors, but people who proclaim the good news, helping people see the wisdom of God's ways, removing obstacles so they can see the saving work of Jesus. That's what it's got to be about. Oh, we grieve over the destruction of human life in the womb. We grieve any time someone is seen as less than human because of their race or their socioeconomic status or anything like that. Anytime the elderly or those with disabilities or those whose quality of life doesn't warrant a ventilator. In some opinions of some people, we grieve over that and we speak against it, seeking justice, but not as the end goal. We speak into these issues because we want people to come to know the Savior who has ways we follow in. Let's not lose sight of the main goal of our lives and our ministry. It's to be disciples who are disciple makers. Not winning culture wars, not just winning ethical debates, although there's an important place in that. 
but so that people can come to know the Savior. And I love that we're concluding this time together this morning by taking the Lord's Supper together. It's the perfect way to conclude this. What I love about this is whatever exact form we take these elements representing the body and blood of Jesus, there's something incredibly wonderful about this central Christian observance that is pointing to profound spiritual realities with very physical expression. We, we take a little bread and a little wine and we ingest it into our bodies, pointing to spiritual realities. Jesus did that with his disciples as he shared a meal with them. And as we share meals with one another, like Chris Pop and his excellent Lord's Supper devotional last, last time we did this in the evening, pointing us to the, the realities of life where we gather as God's people and have, share meals together. And this symbolic meal we take now emphasizes our physical embodied existence, pointing to profound and deep and eternal spiritual realities.